Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at njm.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about awkward conversations and messy coalitions. And we've got both on the show today. First up, with friends like the United States, does Puerto Rico need enemies? We'll be talking to Naomi Klein about that. She's been studying Puerto Rico for a while, and she's the author of such books as Shock Doctrine and her most recent, No Is Not Enough. And we'll get into kind of the history behind both of those things in the first segment. And then in the second segment, I talked to my former MTV colleague, Jamil Smith, about a letter we got from a reader who wants to know after bringing up Cam Newton's uh, chauvinistic remarks with a colleague, where is his medal? Jamil and I have a lot to say about that. So stay tuned. So I'd like to welcome to the show Naomi Klein. She is the author of No Is Not Enough and a senior correspondent at The Intercept. And she's also a Puffin Fellow at The Nation, which I'm just going to choose to believe is named after the bird. Welcome. Naomi. It means I pal around with puffins. Well, I'd prefer them to humans at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Great to be with you. Uh, except for you. I mean, you're like a puffin of the soul. And I mean that in all the beautiful ways it can mean. To shift gears radically into monstrous humans, mm-hmm. you know, you've written about the shock doctrine for a while now. I mean, I remember it's been a decade at least since you brought this idea into people's consciousness. Um, also called like vulture capitalism. And in America, we now have a president who's who's basically kind of a human shock doctrine. He's like a, a shock machine. He's a shock machine. He's a walking, talking shock machine. Do you mm-hmm. want to lay out just for people that may not be familiar with it, just the one or two sentence version of what that means? Right. So the shock doctrine is is a phrase I came up with to describe a political and economic strategy of exploiting shocking events uh, that really destabilize societies and the disorientation that that goes with that, um, whether it's an economic crisis or a military security crisis, to uh, sort of declare a a democracy-free zone and push through very unpopular policies that benefit elites at the expense of everyone else. I originally came up with a term when I was in Iraq after the U.S. shock and awe invasion and covering Paul Bremer and his attempts to very rapidly uh, impose what used to be called economic shock therapy. So, uh, you know, rapid fire privatization, deregulation and so on. So so that's what that's what I mean by the shock doctrine. And in terms of Trump, you know, he is this one man shock machine because, you know, every, everybody's scrambling after what the latest outrageous uh, tweet, the latest, um, you know, unbelievable uh, statement, the latest breaking of, you know, the, the political, uh, you know, conventional rules. And this is providing cover for policies that really are the exact opposite in many cases uh, of what he ran on, right? He ran as an economic populist promising, you know, to be the to be the champion of the working man, to drain the swamp, all of that. And the more we're focused on the Trump 
show, the Trump drama, and all of his little mini shocks, the better it is for the Goldman Sachs guys in his administration who are busily checking off their wish list. And same with the fossil fuel companies, um, you know, for whom uh, Scott Pruitt is a a dream come true, Mm. and in the Department of Interior as well. So, you know, this is a different kind of shock doctrine than I have written about previously. I usually write, I'm writing about these single shocking events, but Trump's you know, I, I've called it more of a schlock doctrine than a shock doctrine um, because it isn't the one event. It's just the ongoing uh, daily barrage of gasps that provides the cover for this pro-corporate agenda. And it's almost as if it can't be called a shock anymore, right? Because it just happens every day. But there's a great example of this in ways that people may not be familiar of. I've heard people talking about the situation in Puerto Rico as an opportunity for enabling the shock doctrine. And it's true that there's probably some stuff that's going to happen or be be attempted in Puerto Rico that would fall under the parameters of the shock doctrine. But people may not realize that the shock doctrine already took place in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah. And in fact, I write about it in the book as an example. And this, you know, the, the book came out in June, well before it was slammed by two hurricanes that the ongoing economic crisis, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico, was used to attack what little democracy Puerto Rico has, right? And Puerto Rico is already a very weak democracy because it, um, you know, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, but they aren't able to vote um, uh, for, for president and they have very diminished rights. But they did have democracy in Puerto Rico um, until this was suspended because of their debt crisis. And an emergency management board in charge of all major economic decisions in Puerto Rico was created, a board called PROMESA, which in Puerto Rico is is referred to um, as the junta because it is a kind of a, a financial coup because Puerto Ricans have lost control over their own finances. And this is really analogous to what has happened in Flint, um, what's happened in Detroit. These are cities that have uh, economic crises that are used as the pretext to get rid of local democracy and have an appointed board of governors that just makes unilateral decisions, often very dangerous unilateral decisions like the decision to poison the people of Flint, Michigan, or to massively close down schools in Detroit. So uh, that was going on in Puerto Rico. I don't think it's a coincidence that this particular method is used in places that are overwhelmingly populated by black and brown people as opposed to white people. And and so, yeah, the, the shock doctrine was in full effect before this latest round of shocks. And I want to just review a couple of things that happened there under PROMESA. They had an agenda to close down 75% of all public agencies. They lowered the minimum wage to $4 an hour, and they cut public health funds by a third. This is before the hurricane hit. And they were already starting to privatize the electoral grid. So I just am pointing these things out because Trump is now on this roll <laughs> where he's saying that basically what's happened in Puerto Rico is their fault. Mm-hmm. On Thursday morning, he did a series of tweets saying Puerto Rico survived the hurricanes, but they're now in a financial crisis largely of their own making, which is like it is just the opposite of true. It is offensively a lie. This is has not literally the people of Puerto Rico had nothing to do with this, this crisis. 
Right. I mean, it, it creates this idea that, you know, every Puerto Rican was living large, right, um, and benefiting from this, as opposed to this being a, an economic system that was set up. I mean, Puerto Rico is is a colony and uh, it has a, a an economic system that was set up uh, so that Wall Street could profit, so that U.S. manufacturers could profit, uh, it basically as a tax haven, and um, it was a, it was set up as uh, you know the, we hear a lot about these municipal bonds in Puerto Rico that are at the center of the debt. These are triple track tax exempt bonds, right? And so they have robbed the government there of much needed tax revenue, which is a great way to create a financial crisis. Um, but Puerto Rico has the relationship between U.S. corporations and Puerto Rico has been. Fun- fundamentally extractivist from the start. This was a territory that was all about extracting wealth and now increasingly through financialization. So yeah, I think what Trump is is up to here is, you know, he's trying to, to tell this story where whatever happens next in Puerto Rico is not his fault, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the so-called natural disaster, and I don't think we can call these events natural disasters anymore because all of these storms are now supercharged by and the unnatural reality of climate change. So it's not to say that Hurricane Maria or Hurricane Irma wouldn't have happened but that this is weather on steroids. This is weather on climate change, right? The the baseline temperatures are higher. And so, you know, this is why we're seeing re- record-breaking storms, record-breaking fires, um, b- because the bar has ha- has been raised in terms of temperature. So, I mean, I'm not going to get too deep into why this isn't a natural disaster. But, you know, what he's trying to do is, is, is set up a story where there was a natural disaster that the U.S. government responded to well, not that many people died, right? That's why it was so important for him to get there and get the body count out right. there that it was uh, in comparison. It wasn't a real Katrina, disaster, right? Not, not like Puerto Katrina. Rico to yeah. say, oh, this wasn't so bad after all. And now, because they know actually that the, that the death count is going to be much, much higher. There are huge numbers of people who are still stranded in their homes without electricity, without food, without water, right? And so what he wants to say is that's all Puerto Rico's fault because they supposedly mismanaged their own economy, allowed their infrastructure to rot. None of that is on Washington. You know, we handled this well. Not that many people died, but uh, but the deaths we're going to be hearing about in the coming weeks and months um, and the hardship we're going to be hearing about, that's all going to be blamed on Puerto Rico. So he's clearly setting up that narrative. Right. And I should add, he, he basically threatened Puerto Rico to take away all the assistance they're getting now, uh, saying we can't keep FEMA, the military and the first responders who have been amazing in Puerto Rico forever, which is just the most callous and cruel way I, you can imagine the leader of a country to say to his own countrymen. And we can't, of course, uh, it would be unthinkable for him to say that to people in Texas or people in Louisiana. But it's true. These are people of color in Puerto Rico, people who are largely forgotten by the mainlanders. And also, I want to point out the other way this is not a natural disaster is that as since Puerto Rico has basically been this tax haven, It's been hollowed out both in terms of natural resources and in terms of like classes. Like there's no middle class really to speak of in Puerto Rico. There's only the very poor and the very wealthy. And the very wealthy have sort of de facto privatized everything. They don't use the schools. They don't use the hospitals. They don't use the emergency responders. They have their own kind of fiefdom of private life. And then there's everyone else. 
And, you know, the most dangerous situations for a really vicious shock doctrine agenda uh, to be imposed is when there is a sort of pre-existing wish list for a place, right? And so if we think back to Katrina and New Orleans, the reason why things moved so quickly there with the privatization of the school system, the demolishing of public housing, was because there already was a plan to rapidly gentrify New Orleans and uh, really to ethnically cleanse the city. So because that plan was already in place, there um, there, there, there was the ability to move extremely quickly when people were under evacuation and not able to protect their interests because they were scattered all over the United States. So a lot of Puerto Rican friends who I've spoken to are really concerned with the the fact that it you know many Puerto Ricans who can leave are leaving and they're worried about a strategy of rapid depopulation of the islands and the fact that there is a pre-existing agenda to privatize the electricity to privatize the roads um bridges but also to turn Puerto Rico into more of a tourism uh, haven, you know, for high-end resorts and for second and third homes. I mean, it's a very, very beautiful place. Uh, and a lot of poor people were living on very desirable pieces of real estate. And, you know, we now have a U.S. president who knows all about the value of oceanfront real estate. And uh, I think we need to be very clear that uh, about this danger. The good news, I think, is that Puerto Ricans are very organized, politicized. Um, We're already responding to the shock doctrine. There's also an extremely organized and politicized Puerto Rican diaspora who are who who are moving as fast as they can, given the humanitarian emergency to 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 put forward a plan for a justice based recovery. Um, And so I would encourage people to look into the Climate Justice Alliance, um, which is a great organization in the U.S., which has been um, lifting up uh, Puerto Rican voices on the ground who have a plan for how to rebuild Puerto Rico through microgrids, green energy, community controlled energy, agro ecology, uh, um, and more democracy, right? And the most important precondition of all of this is debt cancellation, is canceling this illegitimate and odious debt that is hanging over Puerto Rico's head. Which Trump kind of stumbled into, but then, of course, immediately his cabinet was like, oh, no, 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 we, you wouldn't want to take him literally <laughs> on that. Like Much like all of his other good ideas yeah, right. that he has <laughs> voiced around the economy. Wallet, phones, keys. Why does leaving the house always turn into the world's most annoying scavenger hunt? I don't know about you guys, but I always feel like I get an extra workout that last minute before I leave the house as I'm like patting everything down. It's like a quasi-massage workout. Well, eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device, and now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. It's very small. It will fit on almost anything, uh, your wallet, uh, your keys, your cat. Unfortunately, I've tried to, to suggest that people attach it to their sense of dignity uh, or shame. That's not working, but I have faith that the tracker people are on that. When you misplace an item that has a tracker pixel attached, you can use your smartphone and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. I have done this. It is annoying for people that have not lost things, but it is worth it. It even has a powerful LED light so you can find things in the dark. Glad that that light exists. If you use your phone, you can just press a button on your tracker pixel and your phone will ring even if it's on silent. And you can locate an item even if it's miles away because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd location network in the world. 
It's like Waze, but for finding stuff. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. So go to thetracker.com slash friends and get 20% off any order. That's thetracker.com slash friends. So don't forget the the. So it's T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-R.com slash friends and you get 20% off. Thetracker.com slash friends. I want to kind of shift a little bit, but try and see if we can look at Puerto Rico and learn some things that we here on the mainland are are lucky enough to not be thinking about top line. Like, what can we learn about the shock doctrine as it might apply to us in the future? Because I'm wondering, I look at Puerto Rico and I look at what's happened there, and I think that is the template that they would like to apply just about everywhere. And I mean, what's going to happen in Houston, where the the reconstructions are for the city of Houston is a former president of Shell Oil, right? I mean, they're har- they're hardly in the clear, right? I think that maybe the most important lesson we can draw isn't just like to be wary of privatization schemes, which is hopefully people who are listening to this already are pretty wary of those things, but also what you mentioned in terms of the rebuilding strategy needs to be justice oriented. Like, you can't just rebuild. Like, you have to kind of rethink the power structure that you're rebuilding um, and aim yeah. for something more equitable. I mean, honestly, to me, the most important the most important message that I, that I would want to try to communicate is that if you want to resist this predatory strategy, which we've seen repeat again and again, right, where, where crises that actually expose the barbarism of our current system and, and just how dangerous our uh, like business as usual is because we see in these moments of crisis a collision bet- uh, between heavy weather linked to climate change meeting a weak and neglected public sphere after 40 years of attacking everything public and you know I've been studying this as you know for a really long time and and I've seen people resist this tactic with tremendous courage uh, and and tenacity, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis, when this when this crisis that we sort of all understood uh, at, when Wall Street melted down that this this was deregulation gone wild, and that we needed a, a different kind of system. And there were there and and yet still. Despite that kind of diagnosis that was happening in the society, in the zeitgeist, it still ended up catalyzing this massive transfer of public wealth into private hands, into the hands of the very people that had created the crisis, extracted from the people least responsible. And you see this in particularly stark lines in, in Southern Europe, you know, where, where, you know, the debt of the bankers was paid for through, through you know, old age pensions and, and extracted through, through labor cuts and, and all kinds of privatizations and attacks on environmental standards. So this is the what our system will do. And the reason why I called my latest book No Is Not Enough is because I have learned, I used to think no was enough. You know, when I when I wrote The Shock Doctrine in 2007, I really thought like if we just understood that this is what happens when they're in moments of crisis, there is this strategy to just take advantage of our disorientation to ram this stuff through, then we would have our eyes open and we would say no and we would organize. But, but we did do that in 2008 and 2009. And, you know, people occupied squares all over Europe and in, in the U.S. it turned into Occupy Wall Street. But unless there is an alternate plan, 
a progressive response to crisis that, first of all, diagnoses the reason why we are facing these crises, the the, the overlaying crises of white supremacy, of economic inequality and austerity, and climate change. And in addition to that, proposes models of reconstruction and rebuilding and responses that get gets at those root causes and most importantly gets us to a safer place we're not going to be able to resist these tactics like it is not enough to just say that's a bad idea don't do it stop hurting us that's mean that's wrong it doesn't work they do it anyway right we might slow it down a little bit but what we really need is a movement that is demanding an inspiring holistic people's reconstruction and i would say that that's why hashtag resistance is it may feel good but that's the no that's not enough and to try and put this into a larger metaphor i would say number one we are already in mainland america experiencing shock doctrine um it's not just happening in puerto rico it's just a fairly stark example in puerto rico and I would say that when I talk about and, and, and point to the fact that if we're going to rebuild, you need to do more than rebuild. You need to rethink the, what you're rebuilding. That applies to almost every instance of the shock doctrine. Like it's not enough just to defend Obamacare, for instance. Mm-hmm. We have to ask for something more and better. It is not enough simply to defend the right of NFL players to kneel. One has to ask for more and better solutions to injustice. It is not enough to say you're against Trump, Right. Like, I have a lot of never-Trump conservatives on this show. Like, they can be great people, and they're really fun to talk to. But that coalition is not enough either. Like, we have to ask for more because we deserve more. We have to rethink the thing that it, the thing that they're attacking is probably weak for a reason, is probably under siege for a reason. And we need to rethink about how to rebuild that in a stronger way. And I think, you know... Puerto Rico is just, just like I said, a stark example. But any place you're seeing attacks on the system, don't just defend the system. Right. Because the whole reason why Trump was able to uh, get elected in the first place was because that system was failing so many people. And here I don't just mean the people, the disaffected people who voted for Trump. I mean the disaffected mm-hmm. people who didn't vote at all. because yep. they were, And that's 90 million people. I mean, that's just it's a staggering number. So the status quo was not good enough. The status quo was dangerous. The status quo was the ground that produced Trump and that could produce worse than Trump, right? So if all we do is say no and resist and hold the line, we end up nowhere safe. And so we have to do this complicated thing that I think we are seeing, right? I think we're seeing it in really exciting ways with healthcare and the energy behind Medicare for all. Um, you know, which, you know, is is greater than than I've seen, you know, in, yep. in many decades in the United States. Uh, the, the political ground is shifting. And, and I think largely thanks to the Na- National Nurses United. And of course, Bernie Sanders has played a, a central role in this. Um, but it's really been on the ground organizing led by healthcare workers and or- powered by by young people. And I think we see something similar with the dreamers, right, who are, uh, on the one hand, uh, um, you know, forcefully opposing the attacks on DACA, but at the same time saying, guess what, DACA wasn't good enough. And we don't want to be pitted against our parents anymore. And we're tired of playing the good immigrant. And we want, you know, status for all, right. And I think we see more and more of these examples of, of, of people you know, saying saying no with one hand and demanding more with the other hand. And I think that's beautiful. And I, you and I have talked about this a little bit before. And I know, for instance, I've had a pretty shitty week. <laughs> the world has had kind of a, a shitty week. And if you care about the things that we're talking about, you may feel beaten down and it may feel like 
the things that you and I are talking about and asking for are too much. It can feel overwhelming. But you have lots of examples from the past when we have worked together like and done big things um, as countries and as cultures. Yeah. And I mean, I think any time we reach back for moments when we leapt as a society forward, like moments where suddenly things started to move and fast forward and we got a whole lot done. And this is the way progressive change usually happens. It, you know, suddenly, you know, it's like a dam breaks and you, you win a lot all at once, right? It's significant that these are these moments are almost all catalyzed by crisis, whether it's like the market crash of 1929 being diagnosed as this is the brutalities of laissez-faire. We can't leave our lives in the hands of the system. We need to create jobs. We need to build housing. We need, you know, we we need social security. We need to weave a social safety net. I mean, like the New Deal was not perfect by any means, and it left many, many workers out, particularly workers of color and women. But, you know, these were some of the most significant progressive advances, and it was catalyzed by crisis. And in fact, I argue in the shock doctrine that the whole reason why this strategy was developed in in right-wing think tanks in the 60s and 70s was because of an understanding that that moments of shock and crisis so often produce progressive change. And World War II is another example. You know, it does show that societies it can come together in the face of a threat and change themselves very, very rapidly. I mean, one example is the way the industrial economy turned itself into a war machine. But another example is what happened after the war, when after people sacrificed so much, they started demanding more from their government in housing and health care. I mean, it, this is that was the period in which many countries won universal health care, not in the United States, but that's when the NHS was born. That's when we got health care for all in Canada. And, and so like crisis either pushes us backwards or it catalyzes us forwards, right? We, it's, and, you know, even thinking about environmental breakthroughs in the United States, I mean, it was the Santa Barbara oil, oil disaster, the Santa Barbara oil spill um, in 1969, uh, that, 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 that was the spark that led to the first Earth Day and then this rapid fire Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. So I think that this idea of like we, uh, that we can only demand small things is really ahistorical because it's not how change happens. I mean, what actually happens is we get nowhere, we get nowhere, we get nowhere, we have a sudden spark. Mark, you know, we organize, we organize, and suddenly we're able to move forward very quickly on all fronts, right? But we have to be ready if, if that's going to happen. And one of the ways in which we have to be ready is we have to have a picture of the world we want, you know? And I think our progressive ancestors had that more than the generations that grew up in the grips of neoliberalism, in the grips of Margaret Thatcher's There Is No Alternative and Francis Fukuyama's The End of History and this war waged on the idea that there is any possible different way to organize an economy and a, and a society. But I do want to return to the World War II example because there's a specific thing that you've talked about that I take a lot of heart from in that, which is the everyday ways that people made themselves a part of this effort. I mean, this happened during the Great Depression as well, but the idea that people planted victory gardens uh, people recycled scrap metal. People did things that right now I feel like a lot of people, when they look at the big problems in the world, they think the little things that I can do won't be enough. But they can be if we think big, if we think as a culture that we're all a part of this effort, those things like having a victory garden can make a difference. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I was that was some of the most inspiring research I've ever done about how quickly, it, you know, in terms of showing how quickly it is possible for a society to change. At the peak of the Victory Gardens, Americans were getting 40% of their produce from these plots in people's backyards. It's amazing. Um, and there was also a huge transformation during the Second World War in how people moved themselves around because uh, leisure driving was banned and uh, there was a rationing of, uh, of petroleum, of gasoline. And so people had to take public transit. And I think in the United States, public transit use went up by 85%. And one of the things that's really striking about the Victory Gardens and about the use of public transit is that a lot of these changes, um, you know, in relocalizing our agriculture and, and using less fuel are precisely the kinds of changes we need in the face of the ecological crises that we face. In that case, we were diverting it into a war machine. Um, but it, you know, it is possible for people to make those changes. <laughs> and, but one of the things I was really struck by when I was doing that research is that, you know, it wasn't just the kind of ad hoc, everybody do their part. Everyone mm -hmm. understood that it was part of a larger plan, right? And they had the confidence, one, that there was a plan, and two, that the plan was being applied equally right. to the rich and poor alike, right? Um, I mean, there was tremendous resistance to the, the rationing programs and the and, 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 the, and the industrial restructurings by large American corporations and large British corporations who were not used to being told what to do, right? But the whole slogan during the Second World War uh, was share and share alike, Yes, people were making sacrifices, regular people were making sacrifices, but so were the wealthy. And there were a few high profile prosecutions of, of celebrities, of very wealthy people who were breaking the rules. And I think right now, when people are asked to do their part, say, you know, in a drought in California, you know, they're told to take shorter showers, you know, they look down the street and they see, you know, swimming pools filled and golf courses being watered all the time. And they think, well, you know, and, and they know that that they know that corporations are, you know, continuing to, you know, use huge amounts of water for fracking and industrial agriculture. And they wonder why they're the only ones being asked to sacrifice. So I think that's an important lesson to learn when we look at history, that fairness is key to getting sign on. And I think that that's going to be the most uplifting place we can end our conversation today. But it's pretty uplifting. I don't know. I think it's actually pretty good. Okay, good. <laughs> well, what if I could just give you one more thing? I don't know if you sure. have time for it, but I was in the UK about a week and a half ago for the Labour Party conference. And this was the first convention that the Labour Party had after the election. And I have to say, I just felt so lucky to be able to just breathe deeply of the optimism there, because I hadn't felt that kind of optimism in a long time, certainly since Trump's election. And the reason why people were so optimistic was because the Labor Party had done so much better than expected in the last election, and the polls were showing that they would win an election if it were called tomorrow. And what everybody said was what did it for them was they came out with a manifesto that was bold and transformative and people read it and they said, I want to go there. <laughs> and it's I just so hope that uh, the Democratic Party could learn the lesson of, of that election cycle. You came up with an even more optimistic place for us to close. So I want to thank you for that. And it's true. Um, you know, this is something that I've talked about the guys at Podsave about as well, which is that we need to have big ideas. It's it's that's what attracts people. The two candidates that rallied the most 
small donor support in this past election for the U.S. were the candidates that said that they had big ideas. One of them actually had big ideas. <laughs> the other one, the one that actually got elected, was more of a sham. But if we talk about solving big problems with big ideas and letting people know that they are a part of that solution, there's, you know, guy not too far in the past that may not have followed through in the ways that you and I might have liked, but that's how he got elected too. So I think, you know, Obama and Bernie Sanders and in his own way, Trump, like offer the way forward uh, for this and show that it's possible to win in an unconventional way. And so I hope that people listening take, take that to heart for 2018. So good to talk with you. All right. Good talk to you, Naomi. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Stamps.com saves you time and money, which you can then use to grow your business. You can mail any letter, any package, using just your computer and a printer, and the mailman just picks it up. Avoid the hassle of the post office and mail everything from postcards to envelopes to packages, domestic or international. You can mail merch if you have it. Create your Stamps account in minutes online with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. You just click, print, mail, and you're done. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. You don't have to deal with any surly employees or surly people in a hurry to mail something because you are doing it from your desk. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. If you remember the last minute in the middle of the night that you forgot to mail something, you can mail it from Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage, and they'll help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. Uh, there's no need to lease a, an expensive postage meter. I use stamps.com because I like that convenience. Um, I also like getting to decide for myself what kind of class of postage I'm going to use using their consulting, of course. I like knowing that I can do it at any time of the day or night. I don't have to fit my schedule into the schedule of the post office. And right now, you can enjoy the same convenience and service at stamps.com with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in friends. Stamps.com, microphone at the top of the homepage, type in friends. Never go to the post office again with stamps.com. Jamil, how are you? I'm good. I'm right. good. We just uh, finished uh, recording uh, today's uh, episode of To The Point, and so my voice is rehearsed and ready. <laughs> I love you want to be introduced as journalist. Yeah, um, journalist is fine. <laughs> journalist. <laughs> I am a person in the world. That's who I am. Yes. Uh, Jamil, it's really good to have you back on the show. And Thank you. I got this question and I immediately thought of you. I could think of no one better to help me grapple with it. So it's a question from James. And let's listen to James' question right now. Hi, Anne-Marie. I'm reaching out to you today because I tried to have a difficult conversation of my own at work this week. One of my coworkers was uh, complaining about the immediate attention that was given to Cam Newton's female reporter comment that he made uh, at the press conference last week that was all over. And he was uh, saying that everyone's making a bigger deal of it than it was meant to be, that uh, Cam was just being complimentary. 
uh, to the reporter because it was impressed and that uh, it's not sexist to say something like that because of most sports reporters are male. Usually I would ignore the stuff like this, uh, but I noticed that nobody was speaking up. Listening to your podcast, I thought it was a good opportunity to speak up and let them know that uh, they didn't have to be quiet if they didn't want to be, and sort of reaching out and speaking up for the fact that it's a sexist, shitty thing that Cam Newton said. And he got upset about it because uh, he thinks people are too soft and too sensitive and that feminism is basically ruining the culture and making everyone very touchy. We work in a large corporate office, very diverse group of people. I think I'm the only white guy there. And so I was trying to explain the inherent sexism uh, of the comment um, about the struggle for sports reporters in the workplace. The problem that we also ran into is the fact that my coworker is a young black male. And it's kind of a weird position for me to try and explain gender equality as a civil rights issue. That kind of pissed him off. And I don't think it's my place to be saying something like that and to be talking down about civil rights issues. <laughs> but I, I just think he has a warped view of what feminism is and that speaking up and speaking out and that comments like that are a part of the larger shit that leads to the pussy grabbers and the silence on the Harvey Weinstein situation. Um, we didn't end up ever resolving this issue, but we agree to disagree. And so I guess my questions uh, would be, is it my place to speak up? Should I be upset that nobody was on my side and that none of the women in my office chimed in? I mean, were they embarrassed for me? Um, and is it insensitive to try and explain a struggle for equality to people of color? Thank you for everything that you do here on the pod, and I look forward to uh, hearing your response. So the context here, you might wonder the identity of the person that wrote in. I can tell you cheating a little bit because I can see his profile picture. Uh, this is a white man, which also seems pretty clear from the question. <laughs> but in case people were wondering. You said it, I didn't. <laughs> correct. So, Jamil, as also yourself, a young athletic black man. <laughs> I don't know about either of those two qualifiers now, no, but gonna, still, I, I'll know, take it. Who cares about football? <laughs> And who has opinions about Cam Newton. What do you think here? I think this is an interesting question because it's really a twofold question, right? It's asking about what happened with Cam Newton. Quick review for people who aren't necessarily following these things. He, at a press conference after a game, a, the woman who is the beat reporter for the Carolina Panthers asked a question about running routes. And he laughed. And it was clear he was laughing at her, I think. Right? Yes. Would you say? I would yes. say so, yes. Yes. And he was at, and said, it's funny. It's just funny to hear a female talk about roots. Yeah, it was, um, it was so funny the way he said it, too. It was like, he said it almost like, uh, yeah, girl, it's funny that you're talking about roots. But he actually, <laughs> instead of saying it like sort of like in a, like a come on way, he said it in a very sort of, you know, patronizing okay. way using the word females yeah, uh, which, to by describe the way, is women. A, which is a thing that my husband does, too. I don't know what culture that comes from, but it annoys the shit at me when he does it. Yeah. So um, there's, there's a couple things I definitely want to address on this. Number okay. one is the actual comment itself. So first of all, guys, stop referring to women as females. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Female is an adjective. It's very simple. It's very easy. It's female like is an adjective. Say, don't right. use it as a noun. You don't say cripples. You know, yep. it's, it's not quite as bad as that, but it's along the same lines. Also a good one to avoid, though. Blacks, you know, a good one to avoid. Blacks, yes. also a good one blacks, to avoid. Yes. Anytime you're turning an adjective, uh, yellows, as Roy Moore <laughs> might say, anytime you're turning an adjective into a collective noun, think. Think for yourself. So, okay. and here's the thing. 
it was a perfectly reasonable football question to ask. She was asking about receiver Devin Funches, and I guess his, you know, this is enthusiasm for running this particular routes. It's a it's a perfectly understandable 100% football question. He is the one who gendered it. Mm-hmm. All he had to do was just answer the question. <laughs> and the fact that he not only chose to demean her before he addressed the question, but also later on when she asked him to apologize or to clarify what he meant, apparently, according to her tweets, was even worse to her mm-hmm. in person. It just shows you that you know this is a cat who not only doesn't get it, but has never really had to get it. You know, this is a guy who's, you know, really, you know, has a blessed life considering some of the things he's done. You know, you can look up his college career in another time. But, I mean, he transferred to Auburn and won the Heisman National Championship and everything's just glorious. Number one overall pick in the NFL, almost won a Super Bowl. You know, he's living a charmed life. And I think, you know, the fact that he dresses like a Willy Wonka character after every game is just, you know, it's sort of just adds to the panache of this charmed lifestyle. He actually dresses like an actual magician. That's he's so charmed. It's it's kind of amazing. I mean, I I, I wonder if he's shopping at actual stores or costume shops. (laughs) So the Mad Hatter of the NFL got offended by... I'd say that's the best that's the best way to put it. And so getting to back to this madness, I think that, you know, what he exhibited was just, you know, I think pure chauvinism. And so addressing this question uh, from your listener is a different story altogether. Now, you have, of course, this guy defending Cam Newton, saying that the criticism stems from the feminization of the culture. Well, I mean, guess what? I, I believe that the culture should be feminized somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a little bit too much masculinity in this culture as it is, especially the toxic brand. But getting to the point, the idea that feminism is ruining America. Feminism is the principle that both sexes should have equal access to equal rights. That's a very stripped down definition of it. I would recommend that you look at Bell Hooks' definition and uh, you know, Miss Foundation. They all have very good definitions that illustrate exactly what feminism is. So the idea that that somehow is ruining something for you, whether it's ruining football, whether it's ruining culture, whether it's ruining America, I think says more about him and this this black colleague of uh, of your of your listeners. And so the fact that, you know, there is a lot of toxic masculinity being spread throughout popular culture in the world. I wouldn't blame Steve Harvey for all of it. Uh, I wouldn't blame, you know, uh, Stephen A. Smith or all, all these other people for all of it. They all contribute in their own special way. But I think what you're seeing here is a desire for black men, I think, essentially to close ranks around one another. Uh, I think, you know, in this and especially in this day and age, it's tough to get through a day without being reminded of just how hard it is to be a black man in this country. And I think that you see somebody being attacked and this goes all the way back to, I mean, think just within our own lifetimes, think back to the OJ trial or the OJ mm-hmm. chase. You know, you see people closing ranks around someone who doesn't deserve it all to make a larger point about our culture and essentially to say that, Hey, this guy's one of us and we're going to defend him no matter what, even though he's wrong, <laughs> even though he may have killed somebody or said something kind of really crazy sexist remark or raped someone, 
we're going to stand behind him. You've seen it with the OJ stuff. You've seen it with the Bill Cosby stuff. And now you're seeing it on a much lesser scale here with Cam Newton. So I understand where it comes from. But the idea that we can close ranks to support one another while also insulting and degrading women is completely antithetical. And, you know, she doesn't have to be a black woman in order for us to to stand up for women. The idea that sexism is somehow compatible with black advancement is a very strange idea. And I think it's one that's held us back a little bit, you know, certainly not as much as systemic racism, but certainly if we're going to overcome those systemic problems, we need to address certainly the sexism within our own communities. So I think that that's a really well said explanation of, you know, kind of intersectionality for beginners a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about sort of the second part of this question, which is, was it my place to speak up? Because so speaking as a well-meaning white person, I think, Mm -hmm. and who's someone who's tried to engage about race and tried to not have it be an invisible part of my relationships, you know, mm-hmm. but you you and I have talked about this yeah. ex- explicitly yes, that I made a decision a few years ago that I'm not going to pretend that my black friends aren't black. <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm going to try to engage when appropriate about these things and admit when I need may need some nudging in a different direction and try to be open to that. So I, I struggle with this, too, about when is it my place to speak up if I have a friend who's a person of color, who's saying something that's about identity. Mm-hmm. Like, what do I do? Is it in my place to say something? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a couple levels to this, of course, and I'm glad you brought up intersectionality, uh, which everyone should look up that definition. Uh, right. Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, look it up on YouTube. But just the first part of this question, was it my place to speak up? Yes. Anyone can be a feminist. Anyone can stand up for women's rights, women's equality, and uh, the equal treatment of women. So do it. You know, if, if frankly, we men are the biggest perpetrators of the problem inherently. <laughs> so if we don't talk to each other about it and talk to each other about how to solve these problems and how to address these issues, then we're leaving it all unfairly on the plate of women to do it. And it's just it's simply not fair. They've been doing it for so long and carrying the weight. It's about time we, we pick up uh, our slack. Second of all, should I be upset nobody was on my side and that none of the women chimed in? I mean, if you want to be, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little <laughs> bit besides the point. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're advocating something that you feel is right. If you know that you're on the, uh, the proper side of the argument, if you're advocating for equal rights and equal treatment, then who cares what your colleagues think? And frankly, I think moments like that actually help expose who those folks are. And uh, I think it's informative for the future. Now, whether or not it's insensitive to explain a struggle for equality to a person of color, I mean, it depends on how you do it. <laughs> right. And that's where I'm really curious. That's where, and that's sort of the place I feel like I want to, for my own personal, I'm curious about personally, it's like, you know, what I, when I said before, when I said I've decided not to ignore color, I want to be really conscious of my whiteness Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But that can shut me up some, too. You can call out a black person for being sexist without worrying about whether or not that's racist. I think that you should be able to do that. I think that you should be able to say, hey, this Cam Newton quote was really, really wrong. It was really chauvinist. And frankly, he should have apologized immediately 
and don't use females as a noun. All those things you can say without worrying about whether or not you are going to be branded as a racist. And if someone does brand you as a racist for it, well, then understand that that's not racist and just keep it moving. Um, you are advocating for equal rights, your equal treatment for women. So do that. And there are ways to do that without being a, a patronizing prick about it and <laughs> saying that, like, I'm going to explain struggle to this black man in America. You don't have to do it that way. You don't have right. to break it all the way down. Just say, look, this was messed up and you should recognize that this was messed up. And I don't care if he's on your fantasy team or he's quarterbacking <laughs> your favorite squad. You need to <laughs> recognize that your boy needs to check himself. And so, look. Cam Newton is an admirable player in a lot of ways, okay? The things that he can do on the field are incredible. But that does not mean that you have to stand up for the things that come out of his mouth. And when you address a person of color who may defend him, you know, then that doesn't, A, first of all, the fear of you being called racist should never motivate you to behave one way or the other in a conversation. <laughs> you know, like, if you're not racist, then don't worry about it. If you're not saying something racist, then don't worry about it. Say what you got to say. And if you, you know, if you get called a racist, well, then interrogate that point. Maybe you have something to learn. Maybe you maybe you said something that you, you know, you, you probably shouldn't. Or maybe you didn't. Who knows? But the point is, especially when you're talking about gender conversations like this, stand up and make your point. Know that you're in the right. I mean, in this case, you're in the right. Now, as for the last part, though. Where's my medal? <laughs> For what it's worth, I believe that is facetious. I hope so. Because <laughs> men need to stop expecting cookies every time they do something halfway nice towards women or say something that's, you know, you know, in some way politically correct. This is not about you receiving praise or recognition. And that goes back to the colleague point. It's not about you receiving praise or recognition or, you know, being able to convince whole swaths of people. This is about you standing up and doing the right thing. And that should be enough. There are a lot of online mattress retailers out there. Everyone's disrupting sleep, as it were. But they have one-size-fits-all solutions. But one-size does not fit all when it comes to mattresses. And Helix Sleep knows that. They offer something that doesn't exist anywhere else, a mattress personalized to your unique preferences and sleeping style that won't set you back thousands of dollars. Go to helixsleep.com slash Anna, not friends, helixsleep.com slash Anna, and take their simple two, three-minute sleep quiz. They will build you a custom mattress that will be the best thing you've ever slept on. And for couples, they personalize each side of the mattress. Everything from GQ to Cosmopolitan to the New York Times are talking about Helix, and once you try it out, you will know why. Your custom mattress arrives direct to your door in a week, and shipping is completely free. Try it for 100 nights, 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you in full. So, go to helixsleep.com slash Anna, that's A-N-A, helixsleep.com slash A-N-A, and you will get $50 towards your custom mattress. That is helixsleep.com slash Anna for $50 off your order. Helixsleep.com slash Anna. Having this discussion, I felt self-conscious about something that I feel like might be worth pointing out, which is that I have been, as we go through this question, kind of like trying to get answers about what to do with my own behavior, like as a white person in the world. Mm -hmm. And 
whether or not you knew that you were doing this or did this intentionally, like you kept on drawing it down to the specifics of this particular example. And I actually think that's a good lesson for me. Yeah. I mean, I think I just followed the Jay Smooth rule on this. And it's a famous video that Jay Smooth did about, you know, how to tell somebody that they did something racist. And it's about telling somebody that they did something racist, not telling them that they are a racist. Right. You don't go up to Cam Newton or to his defenders and say, you are a chauvinist. You are a sexist pig because that ends the conversation. Whether or not you know, you're actually right, it ends the conversation. If your actual goal is dialogue and to maybe persuade that person that their position is incorrect, then they need to understand the gravity of what they've done. And I think, frankly, Cam Newton didn't understand it until he lost that yogurt money. <laughs> you know, he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I can't say these things and still sell yogurt. Oh, because, you know, who eats a lot of yogurt? Uh, well, Ladies. <laughs> I happen to love yogurt as, <laughs> as my entire well, guess, family will attest. Well, I guess I'd say like men and women eat a lot of yogurt, I should say. And maybe I don't know about men, but ladies eat a lot of yogurt. Uh, not even just the kind that makes you makes you go. Um, that weird special kind of yogurt. Hey. Um, but uh, I, I, so, but this is this weird meta moment for me because I feel like I am sort of feeling something about whiteness here, which is that I feel like for me personally, I'm always looking for guidance on like, what is a general rule that I can follow in engaging these conversations so that I know I will never do anything wrong. Mm. And that in and of itself is a problem. Yeah. I mean, you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to, you know, tread on, you know, thin lines in our in our cultural dialogues and understand that, you know, sometimes you will get it wrong and sometimes you may offend somebody. But as long as you are doing this or saying whatever you're saying from an intellectually honest position, willing to learn from whatever mistakes you may make, you know, that at least is a starting point. I'm not saying, you know, you're good. I'm saying it's a starting point. You have a long way to go still, but it's a starting point. I've said this before in the show, but like being called a racist is white people's kryptonite. And we're so scared of it that I feel like we retreat into not saying anything ever about anything, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, especially with our friends who might be people of color. Like we just want to like I said, like I'm working on not ignoring it, but it feels so much safer to, to ignore it. Right. <laughs> it feels so much better to I not mean, bring it up and not acknowledge it. Yeah. I mean, there's two there's two things I have to say on that real quick is that, you know, one, you know, the, the conversation about race and racism, two different things in this country, largely revolves around whether or not people are, you know, incorrectly being called racist. Right. And I think that's a major culture war victory for the Trumpian wing mm-hmm. of this nation. You know, it is they have convinced people somehow that political correctness, which frankly is just courtesy, you know, before it was actually given another name, is somehow feminized. It's somehow unmanly. It's somehow un-American. All these different traits that we see as positive or superior are attributed to, you know, simple courtesy. And I think, frankly, you know, when we when we pivot the conversation, we center white people in a conversation about racism in America mm. with regards to, you know, what the greatest offenses are, then we're not getting anywhere. And then lastly, I just think that if if people want to engage about race with people of color, then understand, try to listen to them first. You know, don't worry about so much what you're going to, what you're saying or what maybe you're being called or what have you. Just listen 
<laughs> just try to understand that, you know, this is not about you necessarily. And it's it's a larger problem that goes beyond whatever maybe personal offenses you may feel. I think that's really helpful. But I'm going to ask a question about me because it's uncomfortable. And that's what the show is supposedly about. But, but like, I thought at the it beginning, wasn't about you, Anna. <laughs> right. But at the beginning of the segment, when I called you a young athletic black male, is was that weird? No, no, no. It wasn't okay. weird at all. It's weird because I'm 42 years old and well, I'm not I think the most athletic person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're awesome. But um, but like I was like thinking, to, as I said it, I was like, oh, my God, I sh- maybe I shouldn't have called attention to that. No, but- no. It's just that, I mean, I'm, I'm married to a former college basketball player. So uh, <laughs> I get reminded every day of how unathletic I actually am. <laughs> it just and- <laughs> happened to not be true. Like one part of it just was not true. I'm going to insist that 42 is young. Yes, um, yes, yes. I, will, I, I would like to believe that. <laughs> but then the other thing I was thinking about is um, a story that you told me that I think might be relevant now, which is the kind of wrong way to go about being an ally and being conscious of race is like you told me a story I, I retell often, which is that you're watching football with a friend mm-hmm. and like at halftime, he like turns to you and he's like, so police violence. Wow, that's bad. Like, right. That was that was the gist of it. <laughs> yeah, that's that, this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, and, and God bless this friend who I will not name because, you know, he's still a good friend. And I think right. it came from a genuine place. But, yeah, we were out watching football at a bar in Brooklyn. And uh, then it just – I mean, I think part of it has to do with the fact that I cover politics and identity for a living. So right. it is something that, you know, my friend thought I had particular expertise in. But, you know, I was there to watch the Browns game, unfortunately. Yeah, and I <laughs> not necessarily talk about, you know, the deeper sort of like racial divisions in America. But here's the funny part about that. I I felt that way because I have to live in this country as a black man and I confront that reality, I think, on a more frequent basis, they say, than, you know, most white folks do. I think part of the problem with white people when they're worried about being called racist is because, frankly, they haven't been called a whole lot of names before. (laughs) Mm. They're not used to it. And it it hurts and it sucks. And we're a little bit more attuned to it, not just, you know, from personal experience, but – from that of our uh, forebears and uh, from the stories that we've heard growing up. I mean, my great-grandfather left Mississippi because he was going to be lynched. That's, you know, th- when you learn that and you're a teenager, it doesn't matter what isolated, sheltered suburb you're living in. The the reality of being black in this country hits you on the top of a head like a sledgehammer. And we're just, I think, a little bit more used to it. And so I'm not saying that Everybody needs to get used to being called names. I mean, we, let's just stop with that period. But I think that what, it, what matters is that people understand where it's coming from, the deep recess of hurt and pain and injury in this country that's been done to African-Americans and a lot of people of color, especially Native Americans, is not something that heals because you have one guy quarterbacking the Carolina Panthers, you know, or you have a president of color. Or you have women, you know, hosting a late night show. <laughs> you know, these those those are those are progressive <laughs> moves, but they are not reparations. <laughs> and I guess to go back to the example of that friend, the reason why that example has stuck with me for so long is that he was trying to have that conversation at his convenience, mm-hmm. and it was kind of about showing his wokeness. Whereas, like you have been saying. 
what white people really need to do is shut up and listen to people of color. Well, I actually, I'm not sure he was necessarily trying to signify oh. how woke he was. I think he was trying to actually get information that was useful in trying That's to good. be a better person. You're more generous than I am. But, you know, it's sort of like <laughs> the famous scene in the autobiography of Malcolm X or the film depiction that, uh, that Spike Lee had in the early 90s. You know, this young, earnest, white undergraduate at Harvard goes up to Malcolm X and says, you know, I'm... One, I'm a white person who genuinely believes in the struggle for racial justice and what can I do to help? And he says nothing. And I know that later on he said he regretted that. And I can understand why. It's that it's on white people to solve this, <laughs> just like it's on men to end, you know, gender discrimination and, and, and sexism. It's on white people who are major perpetrators of this problem throughout our country's history to be involved in forming solutions to it. And that's why, frankly, I thought, you know, one of the most admirable qualities, I mean, Hillary Clinton had a flawed campaign, as we all know, but one of the more admirable things that she did was she directly spoke to white people and said, you need to be involved in the struggle for racial justice, or specifically, you know, police brutality, um, systemic racism, housing discrimination, all different aspects of it. You need to be involved in getting getting these things ameliorated because as much as they, you know, the Trumps of the world would like to, you know, you to believe that all the urban, you know, problems in urban America are caused, you know, like Chicago by black people shooting each other. It goes a lot deeper than that. And so, you know, we need white people to look a little bit inside themselves and understand what, you know, they can do. And similarly in the gender struggle, we need all men to look inside and see how much better that they can do. And mm-hmm. I know that's a, you know, that's a, a thing I think about daily. And I think, you know, in the wake of Harvey Weinstein, Donald Trump, I think that we should be thinking about that a lot more. All right. Thank you so much, Jamil. I really appreciate uh, your insight on all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I miss you, buddy. I miss you, too, my friend. You take care um, of yourself. Uh, you, too. And uh, let's let's uh, let's catch up. Oh, without a doubt. Thank you so much for joining us. No doubt. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that's it for our show this week. Thank you for making it to the end. I consider you a super fan if you are listening to this right now. And if you are a super fan, I have to ask you a tiny favor, which is to go rate and review the show on iTunes. It is helpful for us in terms of ratings, obviously, and also helps get word out about the show. So if you like this, imagine someone else might like it too. And for me personally, I know that my feelings have a lot to do with just the bad chemistry in my body. And I know that there is a list of proven, effective solutions uh, to the feelings that I have, you know, taking my meds, uh, getting exercise, uh, talking to my therapist, talking to my best friend, cuddling with my pets. All of those things work, but they don't work in a hurry necessarily. And knowing that what I'm going through is mostly a function of chemicals in addition to the hellscape that is our news cycle doesn't necessarily help. It doesn't make me feel better right away. But there are some things that do, and I thought I'd share them with you. Doing stuff helps me. Doing stuff that doesn't have to do with the hurt or pain that I feel doing things that take me out of myself in some small way, picking up the phone and calling another friend who might not be doing well, writing an angry letter to my congressman 
about an issue that may be close to me, but may be closer to the life of someone else. Walking someone else's dog, opening a door for a stranger, or paying for a stranger's cup of coffee, sending a fan letter. That's actually kind of amazing because it does kind of, it's kind of two in one because you both get to experience the thing that you love and you're sending something good out into the world. And then the last thing that helps me is telling someone I love them because then I'm reminded that if someone else is deserving of love, then I'm probably deserving of it too. So just know this. I love you. Have a good week. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a room of rejected mascot memorabilia. Is it real? No one knows. But we do know NJM is proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM.